Welcome to Understand Murdoch, a podcast from The Post and Courier, South Carolina's largest newspaper. Our award-winning reporters have spent more than a year digging into the Murdoch saga to bring you the latest news and in-depth analysis as we cover the story of drugs, deceit, and death in South Carolina's rural low country. And now we're here to provide quick daily updates on Alec Murdoch's highly anticipated double murder trial in Colleton County. I'm Eric Russell, and I'm here with Jocelyn Greshik, who is on the ground in Walterboro covering the Alec Murdoch trial for us. Jocelyn, the defense attorneys seemed to cover a lot of ground today. Jurors heard from five witnesses about everything from forensic evidence to Alec's alleged financial crimes. Can you just break down some of today's testimony for us? Sure. Today was a pretty dizzying one. (laughs) Jurors heard first from Mark Ball, and he is one of Alec's former law partners. They've worked together for 34 years and developed a close friendship. And we've heard from at least one other law partner who was at Moselle after learning Maggie and Paul were killed. Did Mark also go to Moselle? He did, and defense attorney Jim Griffin focused most of his questioning on the night of the killings and the next day. Mark is a pretty observant man, having been a lawyer for so many years, and he also seems to have a great memory. Okay, and and with that great memory, what does Mark remember about the crime scene that night? Well, he actually lives pretty close to Moselle, so he said he got there just before 11, which would have been less than an hour after Alec had called 911 that night. And he noticed tons of emergency vehicles and watched as law enforcement officers and Alec's friends and family members began showing up at the property. And Mark said he'd encouraged authorities to block off Moselle's entrance to sort of secure and contain the scene, I guess, but he said they never did. Mark also saw Maggie and Paul's bodies, which had been covered up with sheets by the time, And he remembered it was a misty, drizzly night, and he saw water dripping off the dog kennel's roof and onto the sheet that was over Paul and kind of pooling in spots around the feed room. And this made Mark upset because he said it wasn't respectful to Paul, but it also meant that potential evidence might have been destroyed. Got it. And I know a bunch of Alex's friends and family members gathered at the main residence. Did Mark also go there? He did, but he said that doing so had also worried him. And why was that? Well, Mark said he wasn't sure if it was safe. Everyone, you know, knew very little at that point about the killings, and Mark wasn't sure if the murderer could have still been hiding on the property or inside the house, and it seemed like state law enforcement division uh, agents hadn't cleared or or searched the house yet. Did Mark notice anything inside the house? I think just that he saw pots with food that were still out on the stove. So he said he began to clean them up. Okay, so we've heard testimony about these pots before, correct? Yeah, we have. So Blanca Simpson, who's the Murdoch's former housekeeper had made the family dinner that day, and she previously testified that she had left out the dinner on the stove for them, but when she came back to the house on June 8th, so the day after the killings, she noticed that the pots had been put back in the fridge. And this struck her as weird at the time, but 
you know, given Mark's testimony today, I think that makes a bit more sense. Okay. And did Mark go back to Moselle on June 8th as well? He did. So Mark said he went down to the kennels the next day. Sled agents had released the crime scene by that point, so Mark was free to walk around it. And he noticed some pellets and pieces of a shot shell, as well as a chunk of Paul's skull, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, that made him pretty upset and and angry. Um, He didn't understand why Paul's remains hadn't been cleaned up from the scene. It seems like Mark could be one of the defense's star witnesses. Would you say that? Uh, Partially, but I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword. And what do you mean by that? Well, Griffin started asking Mark questions about Alec's relationship with his family. And like many of the other witnesses, Mark testified that Alec enjoyed spending time with his wife and sons and that they all seemed very close. But Mark went a step further and really stressed how betrayed he feels by his friend. And he said that the events of September of 2021, which we know is when Alec was forced to resign from the law firm and his alleged theft came to light, that kind of revealed how little everyone truly knew about Alec. And Mark said that that made him in turn question everything. Yeah, so I guess Mark said Alec was good at hiding who he was. Exactly. Yeah, he said that Alec was cunning. That's how he described him at one point. Okay, and after Mark got off the stand, who did defense attorneys call next? Jurors heard next from a Charleston-based lawyer named Dawes Cook, and he was brought on to help represent Alec in a civil lawsuit brought against him relating to the 2019 fatal boat crash. And that's the crash. Uh, Paul had been charged with driving the boat while drunk when it crashed, right? Exactly. So Alec is being sued for essentially negligent parenting. He's accused of knowing Paul had used his older brother's ID to buy alcohol that night, even though he was underage. And for the listeners, remind us how this case is relevant to the double murder trial. Well, attorneys for the plaintiffs in the case were trying to force Alec to hand over his financial records so they could adequately determine his net worth. And a hearing to decide this was scheduled for June 10th of 2021, so just three days after Maggie and Paul were shot. Prosecutors say that had Alec been forced to disclose his finances that day, his crimes would have been exposed. And they portray this June 10th hearing as some sort of cataclysmic event that Alec managed to avoid by killing his wife and son. Okay, and did Cook agree with this? Well, he just said the hearing wouldn't have been all that dramatic in his opinion, meaning even if a judge had ordered Alec to produce his financial records that day, Alec wouldn't have had to immediately turn them over. The ruling would have basically just kind of kickstarted this relatively lengthy process. But prosecutors also established that Cook, like everyone else, had no idea in June 2021 that Alec was broke and apparently stealing money nor that he misappropriated funds and was scrambling to replace them before people could find out. Okay, and after that testimony, who did the jurors hear from next? 
Defense attorney Dick Harputlian brought up another expert that his team hired to review evidence collected in the case. His name is Kenneth Zersi, and he has an extensive background in law enforcement and forensic science. Zersi essentially gave his opinion, based on his expertise, of whether Colleton County deputies and SLED agents did an adequate job in processing the crime scene. And what was his opinion? Well, in a nutshell, Zersi said no, he didn't think they did that great of a job. He believed much more could have been done to ensure that there wasn't additional evidence that could have been recovered. Okay, and with that type of reaction, did he give any examples of why he felt that way? Yeah, a couple. So Colleton County deputies walked into the crime scene before it was processed, and they stepped into the feed room and lifted up the sheet covering Paul's body. We know that from watching body camera footage. But none of them were wearing shoe coverings, so evidence could have been contaminated, according to Xerxes. Sled agents also never processed the sheets that were covering Paul and Maggie or their clothing, which Xerxes said he definitely would have done had he been managing the crime scene. He also talked about the bloody footprints found inside the feed room. Xerxes said he would have tried to take a sample of them to use DNA evidence to determine whose they were. And then he also pointed out that Sled agents never worked to identify or lift any fingerprints in the feed room where Paul was shot or anywhere else at Moselle the night of the killings. Okay, so according to Xerxes, it definitely sounds like they made some missteps. We've heard about three witnesses so far. Tell us who the jurors heard from after that. Uh, So a woman named Barbara Mixon took the stand next. She has been a housekeeper and caretaker for Alex's parents for 42 years. I guess she's known Alec since he was a child, correct? Yeah, and Barbara testified she loves Alec and his siblings like they're her own children. She was also really close with Maggie. And did she see Alec the day of the killings? No, but they did speak on the phone. So Barbara said she called Alec about four that afternoon because his mother, Libby, who has late-stage Alzheimer's, had become very agitated. Her husband, Alec's dad had just been put in the hospital, correct? That's right. And Barbara testified she had asked Alec to come visit his mom later that day to hopefully make her feel better. And I think this helped the defense's case because it suggests Alec had a reason to go see his mom that night. And, you know, maybe it wasn't some random late night visit as prosecutors have suggested. Okay. And who was the last witness to testify? So we heard from a man named Micah Sturgis last. He's a cell phone forensics expert, also hired by the defense team to review evidence collected by the state. And what did he tell jurors? Uh, A couple of things. So defense attorneys have mentioned Faraday bags a few times already in this trial. These are bags that prevent electronic signals from being sent and received and Some investigators will use them when collecting cell phones from crime scenes because the bags can help preserve evidence. Did SLED agents use them in this case? No, they didn't. And Sturgis said that if they had, GPS data on Maggie's phone from the day of the killings might have been kept. And I know there was a lot of talk about orientation changes recorded on Maggie's phone. Can you tell us anything about that? Sure. So 
Basically, prosecutors and defense attorneys unsurprisingly disagree about whether Ellick could have been the one to discard Maggie's phone on the side of Moselle Road, where it was ultimately found. So Maggie's phone recorded its final orientation change at 9.06, the night of the killings. Defense attorneys say this would have been the last opportunity for someone to throw the phone, and Alex's Suburban didn't pass the spot on Moselle Road until two or three minutes later. Prosecutors, on the other hand, say it's possible that Alec tossed the phone out his car window after Maggie's phone screen turned off at 9.07. He cranked up his Suburban right around this time, and Maggie's phone remained dark for the next 23 minutes. And Sturgis agreed that the phone wouldn't have recorded an orientation change when its screen was off, correct? That's right. Okay, Jocelyn, before we go, I have to ask, will Alec testify tomorrow? (laughs) You know, I've heard it is going to be a game time decision. Defense attorneys are meeting with Alec tonight and again in the morning to continue weighing the pros and cons and... There are certainly many of each. Okay, well, I guess we have a lot to look forward to tomorrow, as we always do in this trial. Um, (laughs) But thank you for joining us, as always, Jocelyn. And we will be back tomorrow to recap whether or not he takes the stand. (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks, Eric.